0: Welcome to the podcast Beer and People from Beer Story Brewhouse. Beer Stories is normally a YouTube channel with tips, guides, and how-to videos for homebrewing. But I also do interviews with exciting people in the beer industry, and these are very suited for the podcast format, and you'll find them all right here. Hey, George. Hey, Ron. Hi, Lars. Hey, Lars. Hey. Uh, well, first of all, can you tell me a little bit about who you are? So, George, you can start.
1: Yeah, I'll go first. My name is George. I've been uh, at the Moor's level for the past two and a half years. I'm the ad brewer. So currently I'm uh, in charge of developing recipes and focusing on the creative part of brewing, making sure that uh, we can uh, get exciting beers out there, be that a stout, an IPA, barrel-aged stout, adjunct stout, or something else. So that's pretty much what I do around here.
2: Cool. And hi, guys. I'm uh, Rowan. I've been with the Moors Little for about one and a half years now. Um, I'm head of cellar fermentation. So I tweak the beers so they become perfect for packaging. Um, I'm about the fermentation, the yeast and the final flavor tweaks. Uh, so that, that's about what I do there. So. fun
0: to be here Lars yeah yeah i hope so hope it's gonna be cool well uh, i think we should have something to drink Um, i'm gonna drink uh, motor oil which is your russian imperial stout and uh, we're actually gonna talk a little bit about this beer and uh, how it's brewed and go into details with this and also the barcode Um, which one do you have all the details on is that the barcode?
1: Uh, we got both. We know Moortroyal by by art. It's okay. one of the core range beers that have uh, been to together with us at the Moschato for well ever since we started brewing uh, back in two thousand sixteen. So it's a uh, quite a staple beer yeah. around here. Yeah. Perfect.
2: Okay.
0: Um... So just to pronounce your brewery correct it's called Moorsleutel Moorsleutel
2: Yes yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Moorsleutel yes perfect what defines Moorsleutel as a brewery
1: do you think we try to achieve perfection in a holistic way so that never really happens so we're always trying to prove our beers but uh, at core we try to make these big bold Flavorful beers, which means we take a lot of risks uh, in the recipes we develop, bringing very extreme yet balanced beers, but we're never sh- shy from a challenge. We call ourselves the beer engineers because of the four brothers that founded the company. Uh, all of them are engineers. We actually also run a sister company called Zommerdijk Engineering. That's an engineering company uh, providing solutions for infeed uh, in-feed and out of packaging uh materials for other breweries and other uh small companies like ourselves so we always like to face the challenge and try to come on top of it so that's why we aim to get these legendary beers uh brews
0: ah cool awesome yeah so let's talk a little about about a little bit about your stouts um what defines a good stout in your mind an imperial stout
1: I'll let Ron
2: take this one first. Um, what what defines an imperial style? For us, it's uh, always going into... Uh, one of the most important things is uh, texture, the thickness, uh, but also the, the bold flavors, as in what kind of roast are you picking up? How are you balancing the beer with uh, yeast and hops, or adjuncts? I'm not sure the yeah, the barcode uh, has an adjunct, I think, Tonka, but uh, no big pastry stouts today. Um, but we're always looking in how, how can we balance that beer in a way, even after recipe development, when it gets into tank, when it gets into the bright beer tank, what can we do to make it even pop more? That's the idea uh, in our imperial stouts
0: yeah sure so, so so when you make a stout or make any beer you're not done making the beer just after uh, the, the brewing part no the, no the part means important. just as much so, uh...
2: yeah that's a i'm a bit biased of course yeah uh, <laughs> the department so it's a but yeah sure. I, I think it's very important to look after the, the yeast and the beer um but i also mean like uh, sometimes we have edgings in mind that if we do trials, it just doesn't work out. And what yeah. defines our stouts at that point is being able to tweak it in a different way to make it the best we possibly can. So it's, it, it, it doesn't stop at recipe development and the brew day, no. but it goes all the way
1: to the packaging. Yeah, it's funny because whenever people talk about stouts, we always tend to think about the style guidelines. They were very uh, heavily implemented by the uh, U.S. Uh, philosophy of uh, getting into style guidelines. We try to see beer more as a flavor component, like Rowan was saying. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the traditional stout, it has uh, roasted barley in its composition, and we don't always use roasted barley because we believe to, well, we can craft it In some different ways we don't need to follow those guidelines to make a great stout and that's the proof that we've been doing hundreds of stouts these years and they all go different approaches and usually they share similarities of course but Mm. they always have the, the soul of their own
0: yeah so you don't have a base recipe that you use for for most of your stouts or
1: No, that would be quite boring. I mean, if we had a base base recipe and we just made the same recipe all over again, just changing the flavors, that would be uh, no fun. The fun in in here, it's uh, like cooking, you know. You just get a set of tools and you just uh, combine different flavors. So pretty much all beers that we uh, brew, all stouts, uh, they have different uh, recipes. I'm being completely honest. Like We tried to get... Uh, adjust the recipe for each of the stouts we uh, grew to make them, uh, I mean, if we want nutty flavors to go, we'll choose a different base uh, malt or if we want more dry or whatever it comes to be, we try to adjust it based on the project we're uh, working on.
0: Hmm. So what about uh, the motor oil? Um, what can you tell us about that in terms of recipe uh, and how did you come up with the recipe and and is there something special about it? I, I? I don't get that much roasted flavors in this. I actually get more like uh, sweet molasses, and I get uh, I get dried fruit, and then maybe a little bit of, uh, of coffee or yeah. But it's not that yeah, so dry, we'll, uh, not, not that burnt yeah, flavors or roasted
2: flavors.
1: Um, yeah. As well as uh, eight different uh, malts, if memory serves me right. Uh, we. Um, do some base malt, um, usually some uh, pale ale malt as a base malt. We uh, layer it up with a little bit of Munich and uh, wheat malt as well to get some complexity on the base. Uh, then we layer different types of uh, caramel and melanoid in the uh, malts. And we have quite a high portion of uh, dark grains, but none of those are roasted barley. I think that's why you don't pick up a lot of roasted notes into it, more of the deep molasses, kind of licorice. Uh, notes, that's from uh, black malt, chocolate malt, and uh, specialty. So that's uh, roughly where we touch base on these dark malts. All of our stouts are double mashed. I don't want to get too technical, I guess, but uh, pretty much we're just using more grains, less water, trying to get the most concentrated worth possible to increase the OG and therefore ABV as well. But uh, not only that, but to concentrate flavors as well. So everything is double mashed on that purpose.
0: So, what, what is your water to grist ratio if you have the a thick
1: mash? It's, yeah, it's for about two liters per kilo of grain. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a thick That's mesh. our sweet point. Um, that's, yeah, that's a pretty thick mash, and uh, it's our sweet point uh, between uh, the grains, quantity, uh, kettle size, everything, vessel size. We try to use less. We're able to, but we, uh, it, doesn't work out because it's too little uh work collected so two liters per kilo of grain is usually where we find our right balance where we like the beers
0: yeah okay
1: you you kind of have to
2: point out that we have a mesh filter though george so we we don't have the trouble of uh, going through a painful louter
0: (laughs) ah okay so you can almost uh yeah you can almost mash flour with that, right? Yeah, that's
1: pretty much what we do. Yeah, that's what characterizes the uh, mash filter for yeah. uh, those out there listening, as they w- might be curious. So, it's pretty much a set of plates um, as if it was a filter, like a lager beer filter, a place filter, where the slurry from the mash gets thinned out per plate. And uh, that just allows for efficiency to be uh, way higher than a regular router. So, we're able to aim about 80% efficiency in our stouts. It gets higher with IPAs, but uh, on stouts, we get about 80%. But it's not only about efficiency, that's the uh, economical uh, standpoint and viewpoint, but I think more like flavor uh, improvement. So we installed the filter at about two years now. I think it's right about two years that we first commissioned the mash filter. But in terms of flavor, it really captures the essence of the grains you're using. So just a Half the flavor just gets way more complex when you have such a, a tool at your disposal. And that allows us to mash thicker and all that. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're not using rice hulls or anything uh, in that?
1: No, that's just flour. So we, we have a emmer mill contrary to the typical roller mill, where we do both our roasted and regular grains through the emmer mill, grains, everything to a flour consistency uh makes kind of a paste but uh the husk is still present the malt husk yeah and the filter enough is enough to filter the work yeah. we don't need to add any uh, additional husks anymore we used to use them
0: okay so are you adding uh, because that thick mesh and i'm just thinking all the enzymes may have hard to to do their work in such a thick mesh. Do you uh, do you add any enzymes to the,
1: to the mesh? No, we've uh, made some uh, trials, but we uh, see um, a loss of quality if we do exogenous enzymes, so we uh, tend not okay. to use them. Eventually, if we have some uh, different grains, such as uh, buckwheat, like we've used in the past, or rye, we may get to the point of using it to uh, aid the process, but we usually try to uh, fade away uh, it's it's funny that you mentioned the enzymes. It's actually a very good point. Uh, that would usually be a problem, but our mashing system uh, guarantees that the grains and water are mixed perfectly. So during the process of mashing in, you're getting conversion on the spot immediately because the water and the grains are being mixed evenly as they're moved from the grease box into the mash tun. So we've seen... Uh, Pretty good results with the thirty-minute mash rest. We don't see a huge difference on going a full hour. So, uh, and we've done thoroughly t- tests on the enzyme concentrations and conversion, and we've been clear so far.
0: Okay. What is uh, in the, Do you know the OG in the in malt
2: Yeah, it's usually around uh, thirty Play-Doh. Okay. So, so, that's uh, 1, 1, 20.
0: Yeah, 1, 1, 20. Okay, yeah. Uh, what's the final gravity?
2: goes to... Between 10 and 12, Plato, I think. Okay, so the, 10, 30, what's yes. that? 10, 40, 10,
1: 48,
2: something like ten forty. Ten fifty. something okay.
0: like that.
2: yeah. So, it's, it's, it's pretty high, but it's not pastry stout high, I would say.
0: No, no. It, yeah, it's a really, really good imperial stout, I must say.
2: Um,
0: so what what role does the hops play in this? Because uh, this still it still feels balanced. It's not overly sweet, even though you said that the final gravity is ten forty. It's not overly sweet. Um, it still tastes balanced, I think. So what's uh, I'm guessing it's the hops that does that, or what?
1: I think it's the amount of uh, hops, definitely. We use about, I think, uh, uh, 1, to 10 grams. I can make the calculation here quickly. Like 60 IBU, right? Yeah, 60. it's about 60 IBU. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think the 60 IBU may seem a little bit low for the beer, that is. If you look at some classical imperial stouts, they usually have higher IBU. I- now, thinking of uh, North Coast, All uh, Rasputin, I think it's around 90, for example, one of the yeah. classic imperial stouts. Yeah. But I think that uh, the fact we use whereabouts 15% to 20% uh, dark grains, so things above uh, 600 EBC, also imparts a lot of bitterness. Yeah. So we tend to see uh, hops as the only bittering and balancing factor in beer, because that's the majority of beers we drink and we're th- used to think about beer as a, you know, pale yellow liquid or pale ale or whatever. When you're talking about beer, when you talk about research in beer, no one really touches base on stouts. So I think it uh, plays a huge role in stouts, uh, the roasted malt or dark malts, to balance out some sweetness too. So that's why we're able to, in some extreme cases, to go up to nearly 30% roasted grains okay. and still have balance balanced beers so it's in the end it's all about balance
0: yeah so 30% roasted grains and then almost no hops or how does that work
1: yeah usually we aim for the same amount of hops Uh, that's one of the things we have nearly constant in most of our stouts uh except the ones that go full-on exploring hops Uh, we've had some beers some dark beers that we explore hops a lot but on a regular motor or non-adjunct stouts, or some of the pastry stouts, we usually have a pretty uh, standardized hopping rate because we know it just works to our profile.
0: Yeah. Cool. Um, what kind of hops do you use uh, for bittering? Is it in? Uh, uh it... Ma- 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 Magnum,
1: Magnum. Okay. one? Yeah yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. So you, you're not using extracts for bittering?
1: No. no, we, uh, we use them for a little while. Just to trial with them, but uh, we think that uh, using actual hops, so there's a lot of things that uh, you capture from the hops that help get more uh, depth and complexity to a beer. Okay. Uh, be that a salad or an IPA. So we've used extracts, but I think those processing aids, they are just processing aids uh, with the expense of flavor, and we like flavor, so we like to keep the real stuff around.
0: Yeah, awesome. Are you adding any uh, flavor aroma hops?
1: Uh, not too much, not too much oil, well, No, uh, it, depending on the recipe, we may uh, sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes we dry up them. We've treated some uh, stouts as IPAs, so doing a double dry up uh, okay. on them as well. It really depends on which style of stout we're trying to go for. So yeah. we specialize in stouts. We've made uh, several hundred of different recipes. So it really depends. Uh, what we're trying to achieve, but we like to see stout as a canvas to play around with uh, things.
0: Yeah. So how can you continue to uh, develop hundreds of recipes for imperial stouts? And they all seem to just taste great. (laughs) Who inspires Uh, you? I
2: think, yeah, that's a good question, actually. Uh, I think it's uh, partly a uh, experience though that we we know how to produce the great worth now. Um, but you can do so much within the imperial stout category that it it, it doesn't really bore. There's uh, we make so so many specials that the, the yeah
1: it doesn't get it, it really get boring. No. Um, Uh, Well, it has to do with planning and the freedom we have to make our own planning. I guess if we were always to make the same uh, pastry style stouts of going through, you know, like chocolate, vanilla, coffee and a mix of these, uh, that could get boring eventually. But since we're allowed to explore different adjuncts, I don't know, we've used from hibiscus to black cardamom. uh, It's, yeah, I I even lost count. Like uh, we're Mm -hmm. working on uh, cherry peats right now, we've done a date syrup, we've done a honey, I mean, it's countless of things we're allowed to experiment around and I think that's the nice challenge, that each beer is unique and we try to always come up with something that makes it stand out.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, you do. Cool. So, um, yeah, we're not going to talk that much about adjuncts, but uh, but what about minerals? How you're treating your water.
1: Yeah, that's a good one, yeah. It's probably uh, one of the most overlooked things in a beer, I'd say. Uh, we were able to change our beers uh, 180 degrees by just picking the water profile, especially on these beers. Like as, as I was mentioning before, all of the research and uh, scientific knowledge that you can find about beer usually goes about either pale ales or regular beers like lagers. No one's doing research on stouts. No. So it's pretty difficult for us that we spend a lot of uh, time reading about beer, drinking beer to find what other brewers are doing, uh, You know, taking actual uh, college degrees to see if we can find anything. But we always get to, this paper talks about lagers. So it's pretty difficult to us because we need to find a lot of these things ourselves because no one is doing, I would say, uh, don't quote me on this, but likely worldwide, no one's doing as much actual of stouts over 10% ABV as we are. So we are quite a unique uh, brewery on that standpoint. So that allows us to do a lot of our own research, but that also comes with a lot of risk. So we change changed our water profile um, throughout the, the years. We use tap water pretty much, just local sourced water. Uh, I can't yeah. let Broen uh, talk about his pride in uh, Dutch water, but it's a, a thing. We're very pr- proud <laughs> of our local water, but nonetheless, it needs. Uh,
0: water there.
1: It's pretty hard okay. uh, water, yeah, uh, which is quite cool for the the stouts. It really helps to balance out because uh, you know the acidic notes on the dark rings will bring the pH down. But we still need to correct by the amount of uh, dark rings we use. But I can say it makes a world of a difference focusing on water. To us, that's Challenging, because we need to test it several times to get the right profile.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what minerals do you add to it? Uh, yeah, is it uh, calcium or chlorides? Or, or what are you focused on?
1: Do you want to go, Roman? Do you know them by art?
2: Um, usually it's calcium. No, it's not calcium chloride, right? It's uh, bicarbonate and the Slake lime, right now, we switched it around a couple months ago. We uh, do for certain beers certain water profiles. So, I think where it started was the British stout a couple months ago. We started using uh, slake lime instead of calcium carbonate.
1: Okay. Uh, so sodium, sodium bicarbonate. That's sodium and uh, slate lime, it's uh, calcium hydroxide. So pretty much you have you want alkaline stuff to balance out the uh, acidity in your dark grains. so you maintain uh the desired mash pH. But the thing is, all of these things they are uh flavor compounds, so they can uh, impact your beer. Maybe if you're tweaking with a a tiny portion, you want too much, but uh, we need to add them in quantity because we're dealing with a lot of these dark grains and a lot of cereal, so we can have an impact in the flavor. So, depending on each recipe, we try to adjust the water profile to uh, aim it uh, wherever we want it to be. So, for some beers, uh, if you're looking for uh, additional body, for example, you use some calcium chloride mm. to get some more body. You may use some magnesium sulfate or calcium sulfate to enhance uh, hops and bring out some bitterness and provide some drying to beers. Uh, Some other beers, you may use sodium bicarbonate to get a more round flavor because it has, as the name suggests, sodium as in content of table salt. So that brings a more round uh, flavor enhancing perspective. Uh, If you're doing like a Baltic portion, for example, like something softer, that's uh, well fermented with the lager yeast, so the old profile just cleaner. And then uh, we may use the calcium hydroxide, the slate lime, because that one just uh, imparts kind of a smoothness uh, into the beer. So we tend to adjust our mineral additions uh, depending on what we want to get. We also do multiple different
2: of the minerals, right? Because if you go, very high on one of the minerals you uh pass the flavor threshold and uh that would just get nasty at some point yeah so it's uh it's the same as uh sweeteners if you combine sugar and uh, aspartame or something uh you get one if you do both it's great because you're both uh, below the uh, threshold if you do a lot of one you uh you get above the flavor threshold, and you get a tang or a uh, weird sweetness. So that's what we do with the salts as well. It's, yeah. uh, it's tweaking all the time, I would say.
0: Yeah, cool. um I don't know if the camera can see this, but uh, but did you mention that that the motor oil was about 600 EBC? Or did I get that wrong?
2: Uh, it's like 130.
0: Okay. Okay, 130. That's still
2: I, really I don't know what the calculator is. It's hard to tell above a certain UBC.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It is. Yeah. Above a
2: yeah. hundred, it's all, all the same, I would say. Yeah. Almost.
0: But it is really, really dark. And the head yeah, on it we is do... a little bit more than a
1: little bit of a of sending beers out for lab analysis on of a little bit uh, of things, things that maybe even most uh, hobby brewers don't even think about ever but the one thing we never worried about was uh, EBC because all of our beers are kind of black yeah so not all but you know all the stouts get to a point where they're black uh we don't even bother trying to figure out the exact uh, EBC. No. so no
0: so when you're such a dark beer um is there a lot of uh, carafa or huskless grains in this or, or, or why is it not more roasted than than it is? You
2: take
1: this Yeah, I think it's the amount and the balance between the base malts and the dark grains. We don't use uh, carafa, so we don't use any German malts uh, except for the melanoidin, which is not even a environment sourced; it's some other uh, maltster. Uh, we are uh, well. We don't use a specific. Uh, grain providers, so we like to make our life more difficult and the logistics more difficult. So we just buy uh, malts everywhere because I think, I mean, caramel malts, it's perceived as being one, but if you buy it in uh, England, Germany or Belgium, they're widely different. Mm. So depending on um, the profile we want, we may switch them around. Montreal is mostly uh, Belgium uh, malts because that was what was available and proximate to us at the time. Uh, and we still uh, stick to those uh, grains, but for some other beers, we uh, use British ingredients, German, whatever it gets to. Uh, but I think it's not as much the grain itself, but the balance between the caramel malts, which is also high in the percentage when compared to base malt. So we don't use much base malt. That's what I'm pretty much saying.
0: Okay. How much uh, how much caramel malts is in this one, and how many? Roasted
1: malts? Oh, I'll try to say this by uh, heart. I'm it up. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say uh, less than 20, but close to 20% on uh, roasted grains. Okay. Um, And about 30-some percent. I think it's like 10-ish. No. 20%. Everything that was supposed to go through the roller mill that goes through the amber mill. Chocolate sure. rye, special bee, and both ham roasts.
2: Oh, I thought we were talking about caramel. Yeah,
1: okay. Yeah, that. so roasted, okay. roasted, roasted is uh, 20% and about 30%, 20
0: to 30%. Okay, caramel
1: molds. Okay. Yeah, the rest divided between uh, Munich, wheat, and uh, pale malt.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Whoa, that's a lot.
0: Interesting. Cool. Um. So moving on to talking uh, a little bit about uh, mashing. Um. Yeah. First of all, what what are you are you doing a single mash a step mash or or yeah or what? Uh, it's the beers, most of the beers, so all the beers, are, how are you making them?
1: Yeah, all the beers are double mashed, as I, uh, we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, it's a single single step infusion. We try to get uh, on the high end of a conversion point. So we aim for uh, between 69, 71 C uh, mash rest temperature and uh, yeah, we've covered the mash thickness, 2 liters per kilo of grain use, and just a single infusion. That's the way our kit is uh, built, so we don't have any control over uh, mash temperatures. And pH, yeah. we usually aim for the higher range, uh, that's a 5.4 pH, 5.5 depending on uh, beers, yeah. uh, to achieve uh, maximum conversion in the, as little time as possible.
0: But how are you uh, adjusting your pH? Is that with the lactic acid or is it acidulated malts? Or how are you doing that?
1: Well, for the IPAs, we do a blend of acids. Uh, As Ron mentioned, acids, especially acids, they go easily above a flavor threshold. So we tend to keep them down and make a blend between uh, lactic and uh, phosphoric acid to keep a flavor threshold in check for uh, stouts. It's the other way around we want to have some uh, alkalinity added to it so we covered that briefly but uh, we use chalk which is a uh, calcium carbonate we use slaked lime which is calcium hydroxide and we use sodium bicarbonate to correct those things depending on which uh, style we're aiming for yeah um,
0: yeah but how long are you messing for it's just under an hour or
1: it's just it's a... about thirty about thirty minutes. Okay. Um, our system has a pretty f- efficient uh, mixing system on the way to the mash tun, so it basically uh, dispenses water at the same rate great, the grains are being dispensed. So all grain gets moist before it gets to the uh, mash tun, and that allows for the conversion to happen pretty quickly. And we've made several tests to guarantee that the thirty minute is uh, enough.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. That, that saves a lot of energy as well. So the whole sustainability uh, aspect is, is great there too. Yeah. Okay, so uh, moving over to the boil. What do you think uh, A boil time? How long are you boiling for?
2: So it's an hour usually. It uh, depends a bit on what we, are, what we want to achieve, but uh, usually stouts are... An hour. If we want some kind of barley wine or beer that goes into barrels, we might go a bit longer. Uh, okay, why is but, that? But hour usually uh, is more than enough.
0: Yeah. So why are you boiling longer if it goes in a barrel? We
2: get the the complexity of the caramelization and the Maillard reactions inside of the kettle. So we have a direct fire kettle. Um, Means that you have certain hotspots in the kettle uh, that get very hot, uh, by which you get very fast caramelization and Maillard reaction. Meaning that usually an hour is enough to create flavor. We have done boils as long as four or five hours, and then you really see the also the volume going down. You see the uh, it just gets so much richer, but. Uh, Four or five hours is just not doable for every beer. It's only for the very special, special beers. <laughs> yeah.
1: So
2: that's why we sometimes do it. Not uh, for all beers. Yeah,
0: so a five hour boil, what does it do for the beer? Um, is it just more concentrated and more flavorful? Or, or, or what, what do you feel that it does?
2: It, it, it brings. To me, it usually brings out the, the base malt a lot more. Um, it's quite interesting if you use like something like Golden Promise or Maris Otter. Um, you really get more breadiness, uh, some caramelization on the on the, on the breadiness. Mm. Um, toasty. It yeah, just it gets to the next level, I would say. Right, George? You experiment much more with this, but... Uh,
1: yeah, I quite like the long boiled uh, approach I know we've made some uh, pretty cool beers with it recall, especially on the barley wine side uh, I think we're still yet to try on a long boil uh, I, when I'm saying long I say like five six ten hours like an actual long long boil yeah. we still are to experiment that with a stout the most we've done was I don't know four five hours on the stout but we're planning on sometime this year to get onto a long boil make a triple mash kind of beer um, for some special. But for the barley wines, we do a lot. That really contributes flavor. It's difficult to explain because we've made the same recipe with and without a long boil, and it just transforms the beer completely. I know it sounds like a bit crazy, but if we add, it's not only sugar content, it's also flavor development. Because we can make the same beer by just adding sugar or just adding more grain and you can get the same dirty play-doh for a barley wine. But if you go achieve those dirty play by boiling, they're far more complex than achieving the same dirty play-doh by adding sugars or grain to it. So there's something definitely that uh, boiling for long uh, periods of time that does to the beers. And I think it's a way a great way to achieve uh, great flavors for some of these uh, thick, big beers.
0: Yeah. So, I've heard a Brewery is uh, doing a boil for 24 hours, are we going to see that uh, anytime soon from you?
1: <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, if management allows me. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I, I want to. Yeah, cool. Do we have any
2: wort left by then? Our, our kettle is far too strong to, to do something like that, our kettle is oversized.
1: <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a plan, you gotta trust me on this.
0: <laughs> cool. So, are you making any additions other than hops to your boil? Are you adding any sugars or are you adding any, uh, yeah, something?
2: We do world flock. Yeah. Uh, just processing eggs, that's all. World flock, some yeast, yeast nutrients. Yeah. Uh, that That's, okay. that's it, okay. I think. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. a flame out of hops. Uh, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah,
1: I guess only spices if we're doing a. Uh, uh, some beer with spices. I know we've done a Nordic Star two years back for Christmas. We've done Wanna Taste My Yulalog last year for Christmas season. And the beers where we use spices, we usually tend them to use on uh, outside during Whirlpool, but often we don't do great additions during well.
0: Okay, cool. Okay, so moving on to uh, fermentation. Um... How how are you cooling uh, the wort down? Uh, Set that a, a plate chiller or?
2: It's a yeah, it's a pretty big plate chiller. Um, usually do the you need like we need it like thirty minutes between thirty minutes and an hour to get the whole kettle into the fermenter.
0: Okay. How how many liters is one kettle? Twenty five hundred. So,
2: 25 liters. Yeah, we can pump it up to almost 30. Um, But usually it's uh, we we calculate everything based on 25, 26 hectoliters.
0: Cool. Um, And then, are are you oxygenating it when it arrives in the in the fermentation tank, or or what are you doing then?
2: in line after the heat exchanger, so there's a there's a car- carbonation stone uh, after the heat exchanger. So when the water is cooled down, uh, we can pretty easily control the amount of oxygen that's going in. Yeah. We done we done measurements. We have a portable oxygen meter, uh, and usually it's what we expect it to be. So that's quite nice
0: yeah because i know when i when i brew big stouts i guess when everyone brew big stouts uh, the most important thing is probably uh yeast health right
2: yeah yeah yeah. if your your yeast is not happy you are not going to be happy at the end
0: no (laughs) so what are you what are you doing to keep your yeast happy
2: You you do quite some oxygenation it's it's actually funny we do more Oxygen for the IPAs, I would say, because the yeast is just more hungry for oxygen. Uh, um, We do like three grams a liter,
1: right, George? Three liters per minute, which comes for about uh, 20-some ppm, which is very on the high end. So I think we actually do the same rate for IPAs and stouts. The thing is, proportionally, it's lower for stouts. Uh, given the amount of initial co- sugar content you're aiming for. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think if you aim for the grand rule of uh, one ppm of oxygen per degree plato, you should be fine. So we only we do 20 to 24 and stouts and the same for IPAs, mm-hmm. but that's because English strains that uh, ferment uh, New England style IPAs, they're very savvy for oxygen, so we need to go extra. Oxygen, but I think Rowan wants to really talk about our propagation system very, very much. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, you set me up there.
1: There we go. Yeah, I <laughs> know.
2: That's crap. I can talk about, yeah. It's the uh, since a couple, I, I think it's been uh, like six months now. We have a proper uh, propagator. So that's a 700 liter uh, bezel. It has a, a spinner in the middle that can make sure that everything is homogeneous all the time uh, we have a automatic oxygenation system meaning that there is a pulse going every five minutes with oxygen um, so we can go for uh, maximum yeast growth um, Instead of the fermentation, so yeast has two different pathways it can take. It's uh, either cell growth or fermentation. And by giving it a constant stream of oxygen, you will push it into the growth phase. Mm. This, practically speaking, that means that we can uh, turn one one yeast cell into... Uh, it's uh, If we do homebrew packs, we can turn five into 20 within 24 hours and those 20 will go to a hundred uh, in 48 hours yeah um, so it's like we can get away with uh, a lot now with the healthy yeast we get um, that's let's see usually it yeah it gets four times growth within 24 hours and then even more 48. Uh, So what we have been doing is we do a propagation of a certain yeast, uh, whatever we want. We pull a part out of the propagator and in the same cast of wort going to the fermenter, we push wort back into the propagator. So you start a second propagation for the next batch. So we've been planning beers now uh, that one week has the same yeast, and then the week after has the same yeast. Okay. So we we go as efficiently as possible with the yeast we have.
0: Yeah. So you're not just you're not just using one yeast. You don't have a house yeast. You are you're changing them up all the time.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for now, we've been doing a lot of uh, playing around. But yeah. before that, we did a lot of. Uh, dry and direct pitches so this is like a okay of new air yeah
0: so what yeast is in motor oil is that an uh, so4 or is it
2: what was that uh U S five that's the american strength
0: okay yeah is that the same in the in the blue code the blue barcode
2: uh i guess so but it that's a bit hard to say because the barrel and beers are always a blend of certain barrels um, and we don't really put beer on barrels with a certain e- idea in mind. We give the barrel master the, the freedom to blend certain flavors together, do trials to see what is the best blend. Mm-hmm. So it might be that there are actually three or four different. No, it's not. But in the future, it can be. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. But there's awesome. actually multiple different ones in there.
0: Yeah. So, what about the? Uh, so, now we oxygenated the wort, we added yeast. So, now it's practically to the beer. Are you recirculating in the tank or is it just, are you just leaving it there or, or what's your fermentation
2: like? Um, so, we oxygenate uh, throughout the whole cast of the beer. So, putting it in the fermenter. So the oxygen is already everywhere and the yeast is liquid and we push it from the propagator into after the, uh, at the same moment as the oxygen actually. So it's all in line. We put the yeast in in line as well. So the yeast and oxygen are everywhere in the tank already from the the get go. Yeah.
0: So you don't re recirculate anything? No,
2: No. Not needed.
0: Okay. How long are you uh, are you fermenting for? Uh, how long time does it ferment?
2: Uh, motor oil is usually like 10 to 12 days, but we have done imperial stouts as fast as uh, a bit more than a week. Yeah. So like seven, eight days.
0: Is that active fermentation or is it with a VDK rest? Yeah.
2: Uh, we usually don't do a VDK rest. Yeah, we do. We don't do a test. We do a rest, so we go up in temperature. Yeah. Okay. So when we get ramp- it. to... When are so- I am
0: ramping the temperature up, is that when you are uh, just about hitting your final gravity, and then you ramp up the temperature, or how?
2: Um, it depends a little bit on the beer. Um, if you want to, if it's a yeast strain that throws a lot of esters. Uh, we want to make, and we don't really want the esters, we keep the cold phase a bit longer just to be sure that it doesn't make too much esters.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, because it's a very stressful environment, those beers. It's uh, usually like 30 Play-Doh or more. So if you go too warm in the beginning, uh, the yeast will just start to die at some point. Um, yeah
0: yeah yeah and it would also what's your opinion about uh because in my experience if you have a, if you're making a, a strong stout or strong beer um, if you start fermenting at a high temperature you will get more boozy notes in the end if you yeah. start low and then ramp it up just slowly you'll get a more uh yeah just a fuller beer and, and no boosiness uh, what is your experience with
2: that so yeast usually makes the esters in the first three days of fermentation. Uh, so that's why we always keep the beer at a certain temperature for three days. And then depending on how sure we want to make that the esters don't go out of hand, uh, we let it go. Yeah. Uh, it's like a saison kind of thing. At some point, you start low and you just let it free-rise to 24, 26.
0: Okay, so you you're not cooling it down at all, just letting it pre-rise.
2: We hold it at 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 first temperature, so that's usually either 19 or 21. It depends a lot on what yeast you're using. Yeah, can be 15. So primary fermentation temperature, and after three or four days, we uh, let the cooling off. And it will rise on its own to uh, twenty four or twenty five, and then we kept it again because okay. you don't want to go higher just yeah. the yeast will kill itself.
0: Okay, awesome. So, you, what about the VDK rest? You say you don't really you're not concerned about that, or you're not concerned about off flavors in that way? Is that because you have so much control over your the, the initial fermentation, or because usually I my rule of thumb is if you uh, have an active fermentation in five days you have to give it five days uh, for a VDK rest.
2: We uh, give it a VDK rest as long as the beer needs to get stable. Okay so we just let it uh, so let's say we have we have uh, imperial style that starts at 19c. Um, after three days we let it go to uh, 25 or 24. And then we just keep it at that temperature until the final gravity is stable. And then we crash it and in our beers, you will not. If there is any diastol left, you will not taste it because there's so much going on.
0: Yeah, 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 you're probably right. What's your IPAs,
2: You have to be more careful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So in in stouts, it's not that uh, big of a deal in, uh, in IPAs or other beers is more of a big deal
2: yeah yeah we have done a west coast a couple of west coast IPAs that we thought yeah this needs a little bit longer warm
0: yeah yeah okay so you're just tasting
2: uh
0: every day to see
2: when it's ready uh yeah we do uh alcohol measurements we have uh anton par yeah, it's an lx 500, but it's, it's like an alkalizer. So you can very um, precisely measure uh, the gravity and the alcohol. Okay. Meaning that we can very precisely say when the beer is stable, when it's done. Yeah. And then we just cold crash it and uh, go from there.
0: Okay. So what's, uh, what's your take or what's your opinion on adding uh, muscovado sugar or any other sugars in the fermentation?
2: Are you doing that? I want to do this one, George. You've been silent for a bit. I'm sorry. I, I got all your <laughs> mental yeast. It's just, you set, you set me up and there I go. <laughs> yeah, I
1: know. I know. It was a trap. I was setting you up for a trap. Uh, no, I took some time to get some answers uh, out of thing. Yeah, a. that's and awesome. Toe. Um, yeah, I, I was just uh, entertained by listening to you. No, I mean, the sugar addition, uh, we do use sugars. There's no point about not saying we don't use sugars. I mean, we brew these 30 to 40 plato beers, so we obviously end up using some sugars. We try to use mostly uh, maltose uh, syrups whenever we got to refer to those. Uh, but we also see sugar as an, as an ingredient. Uh, That's fun because most breweries would just look at sugar as a way to get to a a mean to get to an end. But we've used a different range of uh, sugars. We've used uh, muscovado, for example, to impart some more of the caramel flavors. We've used Belgian candy syrup just recently to brew a Belgium-inspired stout. We use maltodextrin to get some uh, uh, thicker backbone. Uh, We don't use any lactose. That's something we've uh, stopped doing over a year ago. Yeah. Honestly, that's just a philosophical standpoint on the sustainable, the sustainable aspect and also because of sustainable on the beer itself. We've seen some of the beers, they don't age as well when they have mm-hmm. lactose in it. So we just stopped using completely because okay. we like our beers to age better as as possible. Moscovado, um, we've used a few times. We've used some uh, other darker molasses uh, style uh, sugars. Uh, But we use them during fermentation if needed. We use them uh, during boil if needed. We've used them after the beer is actually done and right about to be packaged. So we don't uh, pasteurize any of our beers, but you've got other means to stabilize. And most of all, we also centrifuge uh, our beers. So they're free of yeast and uh, particles. So we we can ensure some uh, stability on the product. And we've added some uh, post fermentation sugars as well to uh, capture better capture the flavor. Uh, because if you add the sugar sugar the fermentation, I recall we did uh, maple syrup once. Uh, and we did like 10 or 15% of the whole recipe was maple syrup. Something that was just uh, from a financial standpoint, just not uh, reasonable. Mm-hmm. And the beer had no uh, maple flavor, even though it was like 15% in there. So, we have then used some maple uh, syrup post fermentation to capture whether the flavor of maple syrup. So, it really depends on what you're trying to get again.
0: Okay, so you actually have tried to back sweeten with maple syrup because you centrifuge and all the yeast is gone. So, you can actually back sweeten it. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can also freeze distill a beer like we've done in some of these beers. Yeah, I guess we can leave that uh, freeze distillation process for a second uh, uh, opportunity, but it's something that we also do around here to concentrate the alcohol content that also creates stability. Okay, uh, in your products,
0: that's a huge amount of beer to freeze distillation.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: yeah, okay. So, what about pH? in your... Are you are you worried about the pH going into the?
2: as a checking mechanism yes it's yeah. checking if the batches are reliable i would say
0: okay so it's just
2: not so much check- not so much on the pH for fermentation
1: we have dialed in the ph pretty well right now yes yeah, so we've tried to adjust that so there's a lot of brewers that tend to brew by numbers and not a reference to the brewery, just actually brew by a technical standpoint where you read that your uh, post-buyel pH should be comprised between 4.9 and 5.1 uh, pH. And uh, they go to the extent of adding extra minerals to it to just make sure their word is within the guidelines. We've tried that, but since we run this uh, direct fire kettle, our pH is usually on the lower end at 4.7 to 4.8 uh because it just caramelizes a lot and brings a lot of the well caramel as low pH, brings out some of these acidic compounds that bring down the pH. Uh, back in the past, we tried to adjust that to, uh, you know, play by the book and make sure we were within standards. But more and more, we're trying to just uh, let the beer talk itself and uh, make these decisions uh, over driven. Okay. And not as much... Uh, that is driven. So we tend to just let the pH, if it is 4.6, sometimes happens. Uh, going into the FB, we just let it be. And usually the final pH in a beer, and Rowan, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I am, the finishing pH in beer is not related to the starting pH before fermentation. So uh, it doesn't that's... mean if you if you start low, first out, like 4.6, Four point seven sounds super low because your finishing pH should be between four two and four five. Yeah. So four point six, four point seven sounds to be super low, but what we see, it's uh, they're not correlated uh, most of the times.
0: Okay, so where you're ending up, are you ending up at around those four point two or four point five or what?
2: It really depends on the on the beer and the yeast. I would say mostly depends on the yeast and if you're doing any dry ups
0: yeah,
2: um, but yeah, you, usually we get our imperial stouts between four four and four six. Okay, uh, that's that's normal. And we yeah. are not worried that uh, if it is lower, we will probably look into the process if something happens. and the same if it's higher. Like, uh, did we use any adjuncts that uh, increase the pH significantly? We we have seen some bears that go so, as high that you almost get uncomfortable but not really because uh, there's so much alcohol it should be fine
0: yeah okay so you, you're not adjusting the final ph you are just taking a measurement to see if it's uh, actually just in the ballpark or, or or you hit your target number and you don't adjust it, it if there's something it's wrong bigger. you will take a look at the process instead
2: no, well, we, we look at the flavor first and then check the pH if the pH matches the flavor. So, uh, usually if you have a lower pH, you will get some more in stout, roasty notes, some more uh, sharp notes. Uh, and if you get the pH higher, it will be more round. Uh, sometimes chalky, so that's a thing to watch out for. Um but if the flavor lacks something, pH is usually one of the things we look at to tweak. But uh, we don't do a lot of that in stouts, though. It's, uh... Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. So uh, yeah, basically that was yeah. We went through the motor oil. Um, let's talk a little bit about the barcode because that's a that's a beer, and. Uh, what are your thoughts on barrel aging in general? Because uh, again, like just like the imperial Styles, I think you're one of the best breweries uh, in Europe to to barrel age beers. Um, so, so what's? How do you select the barrels, and what's your philosophy behind the barrel aging? So,
2: shall shall I take this one, George, or do you want to take this one?
1: No, I'll, I'll go this one in memory of our dear colleague, Michiel. So uh, Michiel is our barrel manager. He takes great care of the barrels. It's uh, funny because it ma- kind of sells a line between regular beers and barrel beers, but we share the same principle of uh, deciding beers by flavor. So, while well, most other breweries, they just uh, decide they have this uh, brand that should go well into a barrel. They just make the same beer, put it in a barrel, and magically hope that something nice comes out of it. Uh, but we've seen that uh, it doesn't work that way. So the beers you brew to uh, have barrel age, they're not necessarily the same beers you brew to have regularly. So we often don't do mulch oil barrelage, for example. It's something that we just don't do uh, anymore. So our current approach with most of uh, the barrelage aged stouts, we just uh, get a base uh, stout brewed. And by base, I mean uh, 40 Play-Doh, between 35 and 40 Plato, so a bit higher than the regular beers. Uh, there, we use some unfermentable sugars to make sure uh, they withstand enough body to go over the aging process, which we've seen that tends to try drive away some body and some uh, mm. depth from these beers, so they need to be really thick and creamy going in. It's quite fun because most beers that go into barrel aging are borderline drinkable, as in they don't really taste good, but when they came out, they're insane. So uh, that's kind of the funny thing about barrel aged beers. Um, but we just make that beer usually also more bitter, a bit more roasted malt. So just everything but more to achieve uh, that intensity. But we don't, we don't have a goal in our site. So we don't make a recipe saying we're going to use marshmallows. We don't make a beer saying we're going to use coconut. We have the barrels and we can make a port that fits those barrels. So let's say you have a uh, port wine, for example. Uh, port wine carries a lot of these uh, cherry uh, notes to it and some acidity. So for those recipes, maybe we get some uh, more uh, dried fruit, like special bee uh, malts that will and dark uh, roast caramel malts that will enhance those uh, prune plum-like flavors that will pair well with the cherry notes from the pork barrel. If we have some uh, bourbons, maybe we go for a plain base where we just uh, focus on a lot of caramels to capture a lot of that coconut vanilla you get from bourbons, and so on, so on, so on. So we try to have a palette of uh, elements in our uh, barrel uh, warehouse. We keep about 260 barrels these days. So. Quite a lot. It's quite a lot of space to manage uh, and quite a lot of barrels to taste as well, which is good, but takes a lot of work. So Michiel just goes around every other week with a tasting uh, set. So we try to, uh, after, so we have a schedule, a pre elaborate one, that after six months, we start testing out the barrels. Usually less is better for barrel-age charge so, or for barrel-age beers in general. When you see three years, I tend to frown upon. I think the sweet spot's about one year old barrels oh. because you still have uh, beer flavor and some of the uh, barrel flavor in there. Uh, but Mihil just goes around collecting uh, tasting notes on those barrels. And we try to rate them, see which ones are aging and performing better. And uh, then, depending on the necessity of projects, we'll uh, assemble some of these beers, some others get picked for the indulgence for our guild membership club that uh, every two months as a exclusive release of a barrel aged beer. No items, just a pure stout and a barrel, uh, but it's a lot of work trying to figure out how these uh, pieces fit together to make the puzzle. For example, if I tell you that uh, in a session we have uh, six beers, three beers clearly stand out. They're the best out of the six individually. And any sane person would think that uh, the three best, when combined together, would make it even better. That's just a uh, logical reasoning. But the funny thing is, if you mix up the three best parallels that we have on that session, it does not always mean that it's a better beer. We've seen cases where the combination of three great beers, they're not to be a bad beer. I'm not sure how this is possible, but that's why we have to make these decisions flavor-driven and not necessarily just... Randomly pick them. So sometimes the not so good barrels on their own, they will impart some flavor ranges to the best beer we have, and when combined, it gets something amazing. So uh, great props to Miguel. Not sure if he's around, but uh, he's doing a lot of this uh, boring work to find the the right combinations to make it really profile. The same adjuncts, and after we have the base blend, we uh, make a sample and analyze if if and what attributes are suitable to the beer.
0: Okay, yeah, awesome. So so basically you're, yeah, I heard that before, if you're gonna barrel it, you need a thicker beer. So uh, yeah, and then you have, you're actually dialing in your recipe for each uh, barrel. Um, yeah, I think that's awesome. What about, uh, are, are you worried about oxygen and uh, infections in your barrels or are your stouts that they're high in, AB, in ABV so are they are they not uh, taking any infections in or how are you treating your barrels?
2: So um, usually we get our barrels pretty fresh meaning that they still have liquor in them uh, meaning that they still should be stirred So sometimes we need to roll them around to make get the liquor everywhere but uh, usually our beers will also take care of it uh, and oxygen yeah yeah we are quite concerned about it because if you put a a uh, imperial stout on barrels and uh, you keep you, you keep the headspace in the barrel like this you will end up with uh, soy sauce okay uh that's the oxidation effect of uh, on Imperial stouts. Uh, usually gets uh, soy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Michiel, uh tops them off several times. So, uh, he, he does the first round and uh, fermentation makes co2. so you usually have a bit of foam on top um, which will collapse over time. Uh, so he puts an airlock on it and then puts a little bit more beer in there just to make sure there's no oxygen in the headspace but the micro oxygenation uh, by the wood we are not concerned about that's so little that it's usually the right amount we want to have because it also contributes to uh, the beer complexity at the end
0: yeah exactly It's, it's part of the flavor part of the barrel aging yeah. So what about temperature? Do you keep the, the barrels in a cool storage facility or is it just in the, in the, in the warehouse or, or how?
2: It's in the, in the warehouse. So it's open to the changes of season, but it actually helps the barrel aging process, I would say, because wood expands and contracts yeah. when it gets uh, warmer and colder meaning that you get a uh, faster uh, interaction between the woods and the, and the beer. Okay. So I think you should not keep your barrel in a climate controlled room no. because it will just slow down your aging. Okay.
1: Do you agree, George? That's uh. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I mean, if you have in a climate controlled room, you can actually control Climate, so you can simulate the seasons, but I do agree that uh, the seasonal rotation helps with girls. I think Netherlands being a uh, naturally uh, off-cold uh, country actually helps uh, back my days in Portugal, you'd see a uh, much faster aging uh, because the weather was just uh, warmer. So, aging at 30 degrees Celsius will just uh, accelerate the reactions. So, if you're able to go a little bit colder and some changes, you can uh, better find the peak point of taste in uh, each of uh, your barrels.
0: Cool. Do you have any favorite barrels, uh, any favorite companies you get barrels from?
1: Well, companies exactly, I'm not sure who we work with. That's uh, more on uh, Michiel's field of expertise. I would say that bourbons are uh, just a natural fit uh, for stout. Yeah. They're yeah. just a natural thing. I mean, I really like rum, but that's because that's maybe the only spirit that I actually care for. Okay. So if I have to drink a spirit, that's the only one. Or a spirit neat with nothing added, it's the one that I enjoy the most. I'm not much of a whiskey or bourbon guy. But I think in stouts, they uh, can, they can be pretty nice if they are worked well uh, nicely. Like the beer uh, you have there, the Barcode Blue. Patina and blue. It's a bourbon and rum uh, barrel age But I'd say bourbon. It's just a perfect fit for stout. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. It seems to be a popular choice. Yeah.
2: Cool. So I quite like the tequila as well, though. It's like it gives a punch. Tequila is like pure. When it gets back into the beer, it's like a booze punch, which is can really help the balance in a beer sometimes, but. It's from bourbon,
0: tequila. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what about. Uh, so. Now we got the, the beer in the barrel and it's done. So it's time for. Uh, it's time for getting it in cans or bottles. Um, what what's the process there? And um, is it going back into a tank to carbonate? Uh, or, or what are what are you doing? And what are you measuring? Are you measuring pH again or is it just going on bottles?
2: Yeah, so usually uh, Michiel does trials first uh, before we put something back in a tank. So we uh, uh, trials what barrels need to get into the tank. And then we um, uh, get them in the bright beer tank. We send a sample to the lab because we care a lot about uh, not exploding our cans or bottles. <laughs> um usually i think on barrel ice beers we never had a contamination um uh, but it's something to keep in mind and always check because the problem can be in a very small corner i would say um so we get it into the bright beer tank uh we carbonate it and then we taste it from the tank and then we decide if it needs something else um okay can so- be a mineral addition can be acid can be uh uh, like the beer you are about to taste i don't know if you cracked it yet but uh the the barcodes i think we thought it needed some some spice some nuttiness, uh maybe towards cinnamon and that's exactly what tonka will provide because that's the one with tonka right the tonka rum and bourbon Yeah. yeah Okay. So then so we you, decide. So
0: you actually add yeah. some adjuncts uh, right there after the barrel aging in the bright tank,
1: if needed. Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah.
1: If, yeah, if the adjuncts are always post barrel aging and not before barrel aging. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it gets uh,
2: any oxygen will hurt adjuncts even more than the beer. So.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, I guess that was all my questions about the process. So, um, so now we're getting into the glass. So what's the best way to drink an Imperial Stout in your eyes? What's the temperature like? What's uh, what should the glass be like?
2: So what I, what I learned was that the temperature of the stout should be the amount of alcohol that's in there. So if you have a 15% uh, ABV stout, it should be 15C. Yeah. I like them a touch colder than that because our barrel-based are usually like uh, 14, 15, 16% alcohol. Um, like 12C, I think is nice. Um uh,
1: for the glassware, George, what would you recommend? Go on. <laughs> I would go with the snifter, and uh, on the temperature, what I would say, like it depends if you're um, in the beer. You're But since we sell most of our beers. Well, we sell all of our beers in 44 cl cans, with the exception of indulgence that comes in a 37.5 cl bottle. If you're drinking the beer, your own, what I would say, just uh, add the beer in the refrigerator, take it off, open it. Uh, catch yourself maybe a small pour, and get acquainted with the beer. And after, you know, as you drink through the beer, uh, it's not a beer that you drink in half an hour or 20 minutes. Maybe it takes you a couple of hours to get through a full can if you're doing uh, your own. So I like to see the beers kind of developing in flavors because uh, due to our job nature, we get to drink these beers uh, super cold because they need to be kept super cold before packaging and uh, they show a certain profile so we get to experience the beers more cold than most people and then as they warm up they develop flavors so i think that's also a good experience that the consumer should have just um, being able to see the beer increase in temperature and i think a snifter if you hold it with a palm in your hands it will just warm yeah. up as you see it through it so, just like that.
0: so it's kind of a journey to see how the beer uh, winds yeah. up and the flavors open up.
1: If there's one set sub- temperature, I agree with Rowan. It should be fairly the amount of um, degree numbers that's in there. So it should be like 14C, 12C for most of our beers. Uh, but I would say that even higher, like uh, 20, 20 some C, like body temperature would be an interesting uh, approach. Uh, There's uh, some brandy uh, culture where people actually warm up glasses to drink uh, warm brandies at 30-some C. And I think that also can benefit a stout to develop some and get really some more volatiles out there. So if you have a can for yourself, you can pretty much drink like three different beers, (laughs) starting cold, going to room temperature, and going to slightly warm. Uh, You get yourself three 15 CL pours that gives you three complete
0: different experiences yeah 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 you're right there. Cool. thanks for listening to the podcast beer and people from beer stories visit my youtube channel beer stories for how-to videos for homebrewing tips tricks guides interviews and much more you can also
1: follow my blog on instagram or facebook or visit my website beerstories.dk.